This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week we bring you our Ask the Expert special, trying to answer some of the questions about politics that our podcast listeners and subscribers to my Red Box morning briefing have sent in. We've assembled a crack team to shed light on the inner workings of Westminster. Joining me in the studio are Times sketch writer Patrick Kidd, Aisha Hazarika, a former special advisor to Ed Miliband and Harriet Harman, and then a first for the podcast, a real-life politician. We're joined by SNP MP Stuart MacDonald. We'll also hear later from Sam Coates, the deputy political of The Times, and Callum Jones, a Times business reporter. Uh, but thank you so much to all those who tweeted in and emailed in questions. Let's see how many we can get through. And we start with this from Rachel Hibbard, who sent it in uh, via email. She says, educational change seems to be direct from the current political leaders rather than from grassroots level. So there's often a feeling among teachers and parents of school children, not to mention the children themselves, that when change happens, there's very little time to prepare for it. Do we not sometimes cause more harm than good by implementing changes too swiftly and without sufficient knowledge of the implications of the latest set of changes? Which I thought was interesting. It's interesting that we could talk about education as well, but the general point about how sometimes changes are made because it suits politicians because they have to be constantly changing stuff uh, and whether or not that's always for the good. So let's start with you, uh, Aisha. Let's focus on education a bit. Is there an issue about constant changing education policy? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's something that parents, teachers and pupils really feel the the brunt of. And I think lots of people are kind of looking at all the chopping and changing. And particularly with the curriculum, the sort of narrowing of the curriculum is something that a lot of people have understandably been quite upset about. Because, of course, it's good to focus on these core subjects. But lots of people are worried that um, creativity has been sort of squeezed out the curriculum. And actually, that is really important to children's developments. It's often the thing you get in a fee-paying school that makes the difference in terms of the core subjects. It's that additional creativity stuff. So I think that is an example of things that, you know, parents and pupils and uh, teachers are sort of frustrated by. And Stuart, this is politicians' fault, isn't it? Because politicians, education ministers, like to announce things and they, they want to change things. I have to to say, if if I was ever offered a ministerial job in the Department for Education, I would definitely say no, uh, because it's it's the one department that I think politically is the is the trickiest and the hardest. I have to say, every time I hear the debate about academies here in England, I thank my lucky stars that education has devolved in Scotland. <laughs> um, but this has been a masterclass. Why is that? Just because you think, you, you think it's boring? Because or... it's a mess. Yeah, it was a mess. Uh, and it's a masterclass in how not to handle things. Yeah. I mean, the U-turn uh, <clears throat> the day after the elections 
last week was just quite incredible. And, I, you know, I think there's a point here, Pete, that there has to be better working between government, politicians, uh, unions as well. And as has been mentioned, the kids themselves, what they must think of all this chopping and changing. Goodness knows how it affects their, their education. Patrick, what do you make of this? I think there are two things to bear in mind. One, the post of education secretary is one of the shorter lived, not quite as short lived as transport. But I was just looking at the, the, the figures last night and you had David Blunkett did four years at the start of the Blair years. And then you had six in the four in the next six years. And in fact, generally, the, the lifespan of an education secretary is, is only about two and a half years. You have to go back to David Lloyd George to find someone who actually did five years. Perhaps it, Herbert Fisher, by the way, brother-in-law of Vaughan Williams, who do you want that for a pub quiz? That's very good. That's <laughs> very good. That's... But, but so they're not there for very long. But they want that, to do is, something. Is that the problem? They're, because Are they not there very long because things go wrong? Or do things go wrong because they're not there very long? And so as a result, everyone comes in and says, right, I want a new focus on history. I want a new focus on whatever and so that that causes the problems well sometimes they're they're there on the way up like Blanket yeah. obviously went on to, on to greater things but whether it's it's because of them being moved out quickly or, or moving up they're not there long enough they want to make a mark and the other thing you must bear in mind with education is everyone thinks the way they were schooled is the best way <laughs> so you know me as a, as a sort of state grammar school educated boy is pro 11 plus and believes in compulsory latin and greek michael, michael gover's sort of fishmonger's son who effectively taught himself to read and, and, and got into Oxford on the back of self-knowledge. He believes that the only way to do education is through giving them lots of facts to, to learn. And so that's him. And the trouble is, Nicky Morgan's trying to follow that, perhaps. And uh, I don't know her educational background, but she'll be gone in a couple of years and someone else will want to make a mark. There's also that sort of cliche with being the education secretary that you, you've not really made it to. You've had a massive showdown at the sort of teachers <laughs> union conference and you've been sort Which of Michael booed. Michael very good at. Yeah. Well, and Nicky Morgan is proving <laughs> yeah. to be adept at as well. But I think, again, it's a sort of... And I think the two things that you've mentioned, they are conflated. And it's a shame because without sounding too worthy and earnest, education is so, so, so important. We know it's the key thing to improve social mobility mm. and equality and all that kind of stuff. Yet we have people who kind of are in the job for a very short period of time. They think, right, as Patrick said, I've got to make my mark. I've got to have a row and do something controversial. And no one thinks of the children. Well, someone well, think, somebody of, the think children. of the children. It, it, it was being put around, I'm told, by the way, by, by Nikki Morgan's special advisers before her recent speech to the NUT, was it NASUT, that this would be my police federation speech. Yeah. But Theresa May famously had a showdown yeah. with yeah. the police. And more, that said, speaking as a parent, I know you've got kids, I don't, I don't know yeah. if you... You know, I, I do want them to be... My daughter to be stretched. I want her to learn stuff. And, to, and I think there was a worry that we weren't necessarily turning out children who'd reached the basics coming out of school and and so I'm not too worried about testing I mean the idea that six-year-olds are going to be stressed by sats is rubbish that's that's teachers and parents putting the stress on them I don't know I've got lots of um six-year-old friends yeah, that's, that's, that's my new market. Now, now that I've left, like, being a spad, I just, like, hang out with six-year-olds. It's very similar levels of conversation. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's an intellectual kind of level for me, basically. But loads of um, friends of mine who've got kids say that their kids are, like, really stressed by Well, they shouldn't be. That testing. is parents' fault. That is mm. parents' fault. Is it? Yeah. Kids I, should, kids... Loved, I loved exams. It's how you prove you're better than people. Um, the 11th class was the pinnacle <laughs> of my career. And it's all gone downhill ever since. so not normal. <laughs> But I, th- I think I'm no good at sport. You see, <laughs> there is something. I think you were right. There's, there's something about education because te- parents love their children and they want where their children to go to be good, and they want to like the teachers because the teachers are looking after the children. So it, it it can sometimes feel a bit odd that politicians are getting. Of course, politicians have got to be involved because they're the ones who decide what happens in schools. But there's a there's this sort of clash between 
parents and their children, they're nice teachers and they're nice schools. And, you know, the number of times I've been to parents' evenings where the teacher's got, oh, Mr. Gove's doing this now. Well, they do the same now with Nicky Morgan. There is this sort of clash and people end, parents, I think, end up just siding with teachers because they trust them more than, than politicians interfering. Quite correctly. Yes. I think you're probably right. Quite correctly. Good. Well, let's crack on because we've got lots to get through. Uh, the next uh, question was sent in by Lewis Georgeson via Twitter. It's a, it's a nice, simple, easy answer uh, to this. How does a democracy best ensure that everyone goes to the polls genuinely understanding what they're voting for? Stuart, we've just had a big uh, round of uh, elections in Scotland. We have. Did everybody go to the polls genuinely knowing what they were voting for? I, I, no, not everyone, because some people voted Tory. Um, <laughs> quite a lot of people voted Tory. Quite a lot of people voted Tory, yes, about half a million. But, you know, I think this kind of comes to a wider debate about, you know, should voting be compulsory and all this sort of thing. And I think you have a right... Uh, to be disinterested in politics. I think you have a right to shut the door and say, I'm not that bothered, uh, and turn up to the polling station and do whatever whatever you please. But obviously, as a politician, I'd prefer it if people were educated. You know, the great frustration for me always is, you know, you're out campaigning furiously, non-stop, chapping doors, delivering leaflets. You'll take your campaign team selfie and someone will tell you, but you haven't been to my door. Yeah. Uh, and you do your best to get around as many as possible. But there is a responsibility on individuals here as well. It's not all down to me and other uh, politicians. You have a responsibility as a grown adult to educate yourself uh, and furnish yourself with the information that you think you need to make an informed choice. And if you choose not to do that, fine. But I think it'd be better if you did. Aisha, one of the big complaints during the EU referendum campaign is people want facts. They want to know the an- what is the right answer. And so I think there, is, there seems to be this public appetite for wanting to know what to do. But part of the big problem is there is no answer, isn't it? The whole point of politics is sometimes it is a leap or it's a you, it's an internal compromise that you make. But it's you a can't... philosophy, isn't yeah. it? It's not. Yeah. Well, I think people definitely want facts, but I think they also want um, the facts presented in a way which is accessible to them from voices who they sort of trust and feel that they have some sort of connection to. So I think one of the big problems with the EU referendum, particularly, let's say, from a female point of view, is that the whole debate has been lots of sort of posh men in suits sort of shouting big figures at each other. And that's not really illuminating to a lot of people. It switches a lot of people off the debate, a lot of women off the debate. And, you know, interestingly, I think people thought that the EU referendum would be like a festival of democracy, a a bit like the Scottish referendum was. But it hasn't turned out that way because I think the the way like the arguments have been been put forward. So I think people do want facts, but they want facts they can understand. They don't just want like somebody shouting, this is going to cost the economy schoolions and someone else saying it's going to cost the economy schoolions. They want stuff which is kind of rooted in their lives and stories that they feel kind of like passes the smell test of being authentic and they want kind of credible gatekeepers of knowledge if you want they want voices and sources that they sort of trust that will give them advice they think is believable patrick do people should people understand what they're voting for I think plenty of people do and take it very seriously. And there's lots of resources out there, whether we're talking about general elections or a referendum. I think the BBC, whatever anyone says, is goes out of its way to be unbiased. And you can see both sides of an argument there. You can read newspapers, websites, give details. There's plenty of facts for the referendum if you want them, just not ones that will necessarily give an easy answer. But there are plenty of people also who, who take not much interest in politics and, and vote on an instinct. And I was told a story by an MP once who 
went knocking on the door in his constituency and said, hello, I'm your local Conservative candidate, can I ask for your vote? And uh, the person who opened the door asked what he, his manifesto was, and he went through it, and they said, yes, yes, that sounds interesting, and yes, I think I'll give you a vote. And as he went away, they said, I'll vote for anyone apart from the bloody Tories. <laughs> <laughs> that's happened. I didn't work Things out. like that have happened quite a few times. In my election, I chapped a woman's door... Uh, and I spent 10 minutes speaking to her and she said, you know, son, you seem really, really nice, but I'm going to vote for John Maxton. And I said, John Maxton hasn't been your MP for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> and the worrying thing was she stayed round the corner from the incumbent MP at the time as well. But I do think it's all well and good to say that there's lots of resources out there and stuff, but people are really busy with their lives. And the reality is, is that people consume like such a small amount of politics mm actually and in the run-up to a, a, a referendum or an election obviously they consume a wee bit more but I think it is down to politicians to sort of make politics and make the arguments a bit more accessible to you're people right, as You're well. right though it has to has to look and feel like something that you can be part of I mean I think the men in suits shouting figures it reinforces this idea that politics is something that is done to you as opposed to something yeah as yeah, opposed yeah. to say what you want about the Scottish referendum it included people yeah. Uh, yeah, in a way that true. even the EU referendum in Scotland is struggling to uh, engage no, I to- in the same I, I, way. I totally agree. I mean, I remember when I was up in sort of Scotland seeing friends and family, everywhere you went, people just started talking yeah. about politics. You know, whether you're in the bus, getting your hair cut, in the pub, whatever. It was a genuine... You get your hair cut on the bus. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what you do up north, basically. <laughs> yes, yes. Your multitask is amazing. Uh, just before we get off the EU referendum, mm. we need to do the e- the hugely popular Red Box EU oh, sweepstake. Yes. Now, um, Aisha, you've done it before. You said 54 Fifty-five percent the last time you want I think. Patrick, you said fifty-four. I've done it oh, you, twice. You before. keep changing. In I, fact, I initially said it was going to be fifty point one percent, and that uh, the Brexiteers would say fair enough. We gave it a go. So I think last time you were up to fifty-four. 54. I think it's going to be fifty-three. Fifty-three. I think it's coming back. Now, Stuart, as a as a sweepstake virgin, what's your what's your I prediction for I am going to be a wee bit more optimistic. I'm going to say fifty-six. Very good. 56. You are allowed two decimal places. Point two three. Fifty-six point two three. Very good. <laughs> On uh, that one, Matt, Matt though, it'd be interesting to know what people think. Turnout will be because it's Scottish referendum. Yeah. Oh, it's enough. Yeah. It's yeah. enough chasing the the entries for the sweepstake. Well, indeed, but, but the, the, the worry is, as you, I just said, that the EU referendum hasn't quite grabbed people. Yeah. And so, you know, if turnout is down to fifty, I think I'm going to I'm going like to predict that. it will. I think we're now in the we're seeing this week we're seeing the early skirmishes of what will end up feeling like a general election campaign. Really, we've got Ian Duncan Smith making a speech. It's hardly like setting the I'm nation right. This, I'm not saying that the, the go, carnival please. of democracy is going to revolve around Ian Duncan Smith. I think the closer we get to it. It will feel like a big thing. When the BBC starts doing their debates in Wembley Arena and buses start that, going that, around the country. That alienates people as much as it engages people. But it feels people, like, you know, and, by that and, point, it'll feel yeah, like there's something I, I, get, I get what you're saying. I, I hope you're I'm right. I'm just being optimistic. I Otherwise, hope, it makes our job I really, hope, I really hope you're right, but it's the part of the problem is it's just such, a, it's such an important subject, but it's so unsexy to people. Um, you're saying Ian Duncan Smith is the wrong man to make it sexy. You're saying it's Ian Duncan Smith is type. unsexy. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the evidence? Right, before, we, right, before we get sued on this, let's take a couple of excellent questions were sent in, which are going to be answered by the Times Deputy Political Editor Sam Coates. So I work in Westminster, and I'm going to try and answer some of your questions. The first one comes from Tristan Baker via email. He asks, why doesn't the Prime Minister have an Air Force One equivalent? He must feel quite embarrassed about it when Barack comes to town. Um, I think the answer has got two words. Those two words are Gordon Brown. 
Tony Blair famously wanted his own plane back in the mid-2000s when he was Prime Minister flying around in advance of the Iraq war to try and secure the coalition uh, in the build-up to war. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the man next door objected and uh, the idea uh, then died a death. And that has meant that ever since, uh, British prime ministers, when turning up to summit with uh, world leaders uh, uh, of all other colours, have had to make do and mend with whatever aircraft are available. So uh, I remember going on a a trip with Gordon Brown in 2008. Uh, We were in town for a G8 meeting. We landed, uh, I think it was at Andrews Air Force Base, uh, which is, of course, home to Air Force One, or the three planes that make up the Air Force One fleet. Air Force One, of course, being a, a signal rather than an actual plane itself. Um, and we were in um, uh, a rather weird private jet with a big orange sun on the tail, uh, on, on its tail. And it's basically a charter plane uh, that had most recently been used to carry around Def Leppard, uh, the band, with um, slightly odd leather seating and bar areas uh, throughout. Now, this is going to change. Um, David Cameron decided last year that up with this, he will no longer put and has bitten the bullet, um, decided to brave the bad publicity, and there wasn't actually very much of it in the end, uh, and announced that he is going to spend roughly £10 million uh, overhauling an RAF jet so that, in reality, future Prime Ministers, rather than him, because it he probably won't get to use it for very much longer when it comes into service, uh, will be able to use a plane which will look pretty much like a normal uh, uh, passenger jet on the inside uh, to take him round. Um, it'll be ready, ready in a year or two, depending on how that's going. And there won't be any flatbeds, there won't be any private offices like there is on Air Force One, but it will be able to take the Prime Minister, his staff and business people around in one unit. The second question that I'm going to attempt to answer comes from Andrew Dunn who emailed, figures seem to vary wildly, but uh, apparently anywhere between 10% and 70% of British laws are made in Brussels. How can that figure vary so wildly? And the answer is because your definition of what a law is and what comes from Brussels is a bit like a piece of string and it can be, it's a figure that can be easily manipulated. There are lots of different types of laws, primary laws, secondary laws. Um, there are lots of different types of Brussels laws. Um, there is stuff that has to be incorporated into primary law. There are uh, sort of secondary legislation that gets implemented automatically. And, then, um, uh, and there's no easy way to classify it. Let me give you one example of how difficult it is. Um, There are parts of the Health and Social Care Act that adopt little bits of updated EU legislation. That's a massive document, 500 pages. But a couple of pages of VAT regulations, that will also come from Brussels, might change something that's mandated, specifically mandated by Brussels. Now, do do both count as one law? Um, Should we try and take account of the relative strengths um, of these two things? Or should we say there are lots of different laws in the NHS Act, um, uh, so we should just um, count lots there? It's less clear than it sounds and um, that's why it has been able to be uh, interpreted in lots of different ways depending on uh, people's views in the European uh, Brexit debate. Uh, With Business for Britain, one of the leading Brexit organisations, coming up with this figure that two-thirds of laws are made in Brussels as part of their case, that has been wildly fought over ever since they published that, Um, but I wouldn't expect anyone to agree anytime soon. Well then, thank you uh, Sam for those. Right, next question was sent in via email by Sam Jathani asking what backroom advisor job is the one everyone hates and which is the one they all want? Now, Aisha, given that you've had 
top backroom advisor jobs, which is the one that everyone wants and which is the one that everybody hates. So I think the jobs which are the most fun are things like helping prepare your principal for like a big debate or a big event like PMQs or a conference speech or big interviews. I think they're like the most interesting. I think the job which is the most tedious is going through the diary invites because basically you always have hundreds and hundreds of diary invites and the poor diary secretary is always trying to pin you down to go through everything. That is definitely the worst job because that's like admin, but it's important admin. And presumably the, the better the backroom job, the more high pressure it is. Because the- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. There's more focus on you and the stakes are higher. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes those backroom jobs really interesting because, you know, you want to be, if it's a success, then it's, it's reflected glory on you. But if it's an absolute flop, then you can't make eye contact with anybody for like two weeks. <laughs> and normally someone briefs against you to Guido Fox. Do you know, I think working, having been an MP now for one year exactly. Yes. Did you ever dream you'd be doing this? <laughs> I did constantly uh, dreaming of it. But I think... Um, I can't tell at Westminster who the diary person is and who the who the chief of staff is because they all wander around with such great self-importance. And that colonnade between Portcullis and uh, and the palace is where egos are are tried and tested. Yeah. You know, there's people think they're in the West Wing, and there's it's a more Green Wing. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Uh, I think you know there are important jobs. Everybody wants to be the chief of staff, the speechwriter, the, the you know the senior press advisor or whatever. And I'm also amazed at people seem to make their titles up. Some yes. of the email titles I've read by people, and I go, you're not a senior economic advisor, you're a researcher. Yeah, you know? I, I do remember I, I, a sort of middle-ranking opposition frontbencher in the Tories in opposition yep. had a chief of staff who behaved exactly like that, that like, he was, like he was running Downing Street, and actually he was just a, <laughs> just a researcher who sort yes. of sent out terrible, yes. unusable Maybe I'll get a chief of staff then. <laughs> Because this is quite, uh, this is linked as well. Stuart Dunlop emailed in saying, "Are you interested to know what sort of behind-the-scenes relations exist between the government and the opposition? What interaction takes place, and when, particularly coordinating things like meetings and appearances between the PM and the leaders of the opposition? Because presumably, Aisha, 
there's somebody who's always speaking to the enemy, is there? Yeah, I mean, there are communications between the offices. Obviously, the WIPs offices do a lot of business on a sort of day-by-day basis to, to just manage the business of the House. But normally, the um, chief of staff to the leader of the opposition will have a direct line to the chief of staff of the prime minister. They will, um, you know, coordinate. So little things like, so for example, you're doing PMQs, Sometimes you would check whether if someone important had died, you might put a call into Downing Street to see if the Prime Minister was going to make a tribute or do a, a mention of it, of that type of thing. Or sometimes there are other examples where you do have to do some kind of cross-party working. So, for example, when we were working on the Levison stuff and we were trying to get a cross-party agreement, there was often a bit of to and froing going on between the sort of chiefs of staff and that type of thing and us and the Deputy Prime Minister's office as well. But on the whole, it's it's more functional things that they would um, check about, you know, like for if, if foreign dignitary was coming, kind of trying to schedule when a visit might happen, what the prime minister was going to say if he was going particularly about tributes and, and, and things like that. And also sometimes number 10 out of courtesy will let the leader of the oppositions know about things that are just useful. Particularly tributes and names of service personnel who've died in the yeah. last week and that sort of thing. Patrick, this happened... Obviously, uh, there hadn't been communication quite recently where Jeremy Corbyn, I can't remember, paid tribute to a playwright and David Cameron. Oh, West playwright, he yes, mentions. yes, and David Cameron <laughs> had no idea what he was talking about and couldn't even remember his name. Yeah. Well, I mean, that shouldn't have been a matter for consultation between them if Cameron <laughs> isn't even going to pay attention to what Corbyn's has said. Um, <laughs> There was a case also recently where Cameron, I think it was when he came back from, from his EU negotiations, and he only gave Corbyn half of what his statement. And Corbyn made a slight dig about this. Yes. I, th- I thank you for the statement, half of which I received. But because Corbyn, unfortunately, is very inflexible and can't think on his feet, he couldn't, as the PM was speaking, then adapt what he said. Can I just come in quickly yeah. on advisors, by the yes. way? Yes. Because many years ago, I now get ostracised by my friends here. I was a, a Tory lackey, I'm afraid. Unbelievable. I, I manned the transport research desk in central <laughs> office. And, and the person everyone hated was the person in charge of the Treasury research because they were the one who always said no. Whenever you came up with a bright idea about buses, they said no. Yeah. Can you cost it? The person everyone quite liked was Tina Stoll um, who worked in William Hague's office and main job everyone joked was to uh, clear away the sandwiches after the PMQ's prep and she's now leader of the House of Lords so it just goes to show that you can be perceived as a lowly lackey and rise up through through the ranks. Very good uh, well let's uh, let's move on we've now got a couple of um, we needed a bit of number crunching done so so obviously we can't ask political people because they're terrible with numbers so we turn to the business desk and Callum Jones. My name's Callum Jones and I'm a business reporter at The Times. Until recently, I was in Westminster as a political reporter. So, Old Holborn asks on Twitter, If governments can't just print money, why do we pay taxes? It's a good question. Why not just print more cash to fund public services and pay down national debt? Well, history has shown that printing money triggers a rise in inflation. So what seems on the surface to be a simple solution to many problems would almost definitely cause even more. While the basic idea of quantitative easing might seem quite tempting, its fundamental flaw is that just printing money does not magically boost economic output. All it does is increase demand for the products and services that are already around, so sellers boost their prices. And this, of course, is bad news for savers. Inflation means you get less for your money. So, Marcha Lord asks on Twitter, if Labour hadn't sold off our gold reserves, how much would they be worth today? 
Now, when Gordon Brown sold off a considerable portion of Britain's gold between 1999 and 2002, he did so at an average price of $277 an ounce. The then Labour government flogged around 58% of the UK's reserves at the time, making somewhere in the region of $3.5 billion. As we know, less than a decade later, prices had rocketed to $1,889 an ounce, almost seven times the price at which 395 tonnes of the stuff was sold. In theory, if the government flogged the same amount of British gold in the month when prices reached that peak, August 2011, it could have been looking at a sale towards $19 billion. That's a figure which Conservatives often get particularly animated about. But two points need to be made here. Firstly, the gold price has since fallen. It was almost as low as $1,000 back in December. Now, while that's considerably above Labour's selling price, it's a vast drop from the 1800 peak in 2011. And secondly, nobody can predict the future. The gold price has been falling for some time when the sale began in 1999 and remained broadly consistent for the following years. It was only really when Gordon Brown left the Treasury that they started their rapid rise. Having said that, taking a rough guess, suggesting the government could have sold the batch for around $1,200 at some point this year per ounce, they'd be looking at around a total sale of $15 billion, more than four times what the government raked in at the turn of the century. Thank you for that, Callum. Now we've got a question from Greg Lane via email. He says, do junior politicians actually like to be blatantly schmoozed by potential leadership candidates and whips, or is it off-putting? I think we've got to come to you first with that, Stuart. Well, I've never been schmoozed, but I I am available for schmoozing (laughs) if uh, any politicians are listening for what it's worth. I think it probably is a bit awkward. I've spoken to some Tory MPs who were also elected last year who have been to, you know, I think there was the famous Boris Johnson night. Was it the Savoy, I think it was, last year? They love it, but then I think the next day they think that they've just been really cheap <laughs> and kind of sold themselves out for a cheap glass a, of, quick you know, Paul Roger or something. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, it's part of the way that politics uh, works, uh, I suppose, and it's all happening in the in the Tory benches at the minute, and I'm not sure they're quite at that stage in the Labour benches yet because not, not, I, quite. not quite. But I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will get there. If it had been better at schmoozing, um, they might have. Somebody else might have won the leadership last summer. Yeah. If, the, if anyone's schmoozing me, then there's a real problem. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. There's no because I have no, no influence on either of yeah, those yeah. Uh, sides of the house. Well, I've heard that John McDonnell is doing a bit of schmoozing and and speaking recently to a, a new entrant who said it was quite dis- disconcerting that uh, McDonnell, who you know, is known within the Labour Party as, as being quite scheming, but was coming up being tremendously charming. Um, and, and he was disturbed. It reminded me of your Bob Monkhouse joke about the most important thing is authenticity. Yeah. Once you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's nothing creepier than when jo- Gordon Brown started smiling. That, yes. And, and there feels a bit like that with John McDonnell going around being nice to people. It's very, very off-putting. Indeed. But MPs like to feel important. And so it's not just the schmoozing directly one-on-one. It's when the schmoozer schmoozes about you to someone else. And so you hear that Theresa May is doing an awful lot of constituency association dinners on the rubber chicken circuit. She's on manoeuvres. And not only do the associations who may well end up having to vote for... choosing to vote for her in the leadership contest like that but the MP looks big look at me I've got the Home Secretary down and and so um, I think they quite like to it it pampers their ego if they're being schmoozed I totally agree politicians love being schmoozed and politicians like to feel that they're in like the inner circle of finding out a bit of gossip or they're part of maybe there's like a movement happening but 
I think the thing to do it well is you have to be quite natural and confident at doing it. And when people suddenly start reaching out and schmoozing, it's normally because there's some sort of impending crisis. So Gordon used to start doing these lasagna nights <laughs> when there was basically... I'm doing this all wrong. Oh, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> doing you all but wrong. also, they, it was like, I, I can't remember who made the, the lasagnas, but these lasagna nights became sort of famous and everybody sort of was like, have you, have you, have you had lasagna around like the, the flat yet? And... I think that was a kind of a sign. That was a sign of crisis. That was the warning warning light on the dashboard if the lasagna was being got out. I mean, the people who do the schmoozing very effortlessly and very well tend to be the people who are already quite canny about being in the mix of people. They'll kind of go into the tea rooms. They'll sort of like chat to people anyway. They'll go to strangers every so often. So it's not like a surprise when they suddenly turn up and buy around and everyone's like, all right. Michael Gover's quite good at this because he's frightfully polite. And we'll remember the last conversation he had with you, even if it was just a kind of passing sentence or two. Uh, but I, you, you, I mean, I don't know because I'm, I'm not a Tory, but you don't get the impression he's schmoozing as such. But that's good schmoozing. Yeah, that's good that's, schmoozing. But as you, you see, that's, that's, that's good schmoozing. Yeah. But he's, he's just enormously, you know, it's lovely to see you. And, you know, always asks about your partner and all that sort of stuff. He's terribly I'll polite. tell you who's very good at doing that as well. It's actually our chief whip, Rosie Winterton, is like excellent at, at doing this. I mean, it's one of the reasons I think she's sort of, you know, lasted such a, a long time. In a, in a pretty thankless job. Yeah, exactly. But she's, she's job. quite yeah. sort of seamless. She's always like, you know, in strangers and she sort of is friends with, you know, she's got good relations with everybody across the piece like all of the time. So when things need to get escalated to a crisis, she's already got a good social kind of foundation. Mm. The other thing to bear in mind is that the schmoozing isn't necessarily always done by the person who will benefit from the schmoozing. So a, a schmoozer will send his army of schmooze lieutenants out. So Thatcher was famously bad at playing the tea rooms. Um, but when it came to the, the Tory leadership contest uh, in, in 75, Airy Neve and the other acolytes were out there doing all the glad handing and would you like to come and meet Margaret? But she wasn't doing the schmoozing directly herself. And actually it was an absence of schmoozing, which a lot of people put down to David Miliband not winning the enough Labour MP nominations in the Yep. Le- leadership contest. It, yeah, that... he, there was an assumption that he'd been foreign secretary, and he was, you know, he would rise above it. And actually, Ed was the one who put the groundwork in. And uh, instead of inviting people mm. in and saying you're going to vote for me, aren't you? Yeah, yep, that's that is absolutely right. And I know a number of MPs who said that they had been um, kind of erring towards David, but they sort of never got the personal phone call. They didn't get that personal touch, whereas they sort of got it from Ed, and that's the thing that kind of swung it in the end. It was exactly the same with Michael Portillo in 2001 as well. That's why Ian Duncan Smith got in, because a number of people who were on Portillo's wing of the party felt that he hadn't come and patted them on the head. And they, they thought, well, Ian Duncan Smith isn't going to win. I'll give him my vote, and it'll just be a protest vote. But enough of them did it. Schmoo- the schmoozing can, can make, an absence of schmoozing can make a big difference mm-hmm. to the outcome of elections. Well, it, we're all, I think, Labour MPs uh, and SNP MPs, because we, we always face reselection and open reselection. But given the crisis with momentum trying to deselect folk, they'll all be trying to schmooze their yeah, local parties schmooze. and keep and that's them that's something that people in Westminster forget, is that you've yes, got to do some local do. schmoozing as well. Yeah, you have to schmooze locally, keep in touch with folk, uh, be available, uh, remember important people's birthdays and anniversaries and all the rest of it. <laughs> Buy a lot of House of Commons whiskey. Buy a lot of House of Commons whiskey, <laughs> well, that's which why people you think good... you get for free. I know. <laughs> that's that's why you need free. a good, over, overly grand titled Chief of Staff to yes, do all that for you. I suppose. Is, is it an insult in Scotland, though, if you were to give someone a bottle of House of Commons whiskey? Is it good whiskey? Only if it is... 
unsigned by all the Scottish MPs. If it's unsigned, all the SNP MPs. All, 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 yeah, that's what. That's what the label's big enough. For we do that. The, the box. Oh, we say the okay. box. Yeah. We do that quite a lot. Wow. The There's not a group of... meeting that. That doesn't go past <laughs> without boxes getting sent round. But is the quality okay? Was it a bit like giving someone bells? Or something? Uh, I, I think it's, I'm told it's actually not too bad. I'm by no means a whiskey expert. I'll drink whatever's put in front of me generally, but uh, I'm told it's quite. It's all right. It's turned into food and drink all of yes. a <laughs> um, I recommend the Times Gin, by the way. Oh, we, can, we, can all, we can all thoroughly recommend the Times Gin. Uh, for, uh, finally, uh, let's just do one final question from Will Kenning sent this on Twitter. What's the weirdest tradition that still gets upheld in Parliament? Now, Stuart, you've only been there for a year, so you'll probably... The gallist as long as my arm. Well, yeah, well, exactly, because you, you, we, we, we've we been there longer, just accept it as being completely normal. Mm. So what's, what do you think is the weirdest thing that still goes on? I think it, it, this isn't the weirdest thing, but it's the most tedious thing and the most frustrating thing is the voting system. If you have four or five amendments, that can take you well over an hour to vote. If you look at the European Parliament, uh, the Scottish Parliament, any modern legislature, it's all done electronically. But that and all the weird things like, uh, you know, my honourable friend and all this really arcane language that that just it's not natural you can't uh, say you you can't say you which actually i don't mind so much also the the no clapping ah, um, i'm big on i wrote at the time i think the there's a practical i think there's a practical thing in that it would hold things up yeah uh, so which which I can understand, but the, to replace that with this kind of braying donkey noise, I completely um, agree. I'm, I'm right behind is you. It's just that. weird, yeah. uh, and all the men in tights and, and I think I think and the SNP should well. have made more of clapping because you did a bit of clapping to start. With. We did. And yeah. Burko was this, gave this patronising. Yeah. We don't do that here if you don't mind. Yes. And yet you can carry on making a noise yes. like a farm animal, and that's absolutely fine. But I think, I th- but yes, but I think you know, I think you've got to pick your fights, haven't yeah, yeah. you? And what was the point of that yeah, one, that's really? True. Patrick, you spend a lot of time in the gallery looking down on the Commons as the sketch writer. What's the weirdest thing that you see going on? Well, actually, the stuff I don't see. I'm, I'm still fascinated by the fact that there was a snuff box. I don't know. Have yes. you ever had any of the snuff? Yeah, I've not, no. But that is kept by the by the, the, the chief doorman um, out of his own pocket, although it doesn't cost very much money. Stuff. I've not had snuff. I was thinking, you've been <laughs> having a terrible time. Well, you've been sitting around signing bottles of whiskey. You, 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 <laughs> you do have a, rib, a ribbon by which you can hang up your sword. I do. That's which true. I love. And actually, one of the other things I've not seen, but you can verify if this is true, that when the session begins with prayers, which the yeah. press can't come in and see, you turn your back on it. That's right, yes. And I was told this is so that you don't puncture the seat with your sword. And I think there's some kind of uh, Catholic reason as well, which I'm not entirely clear on, um, but apparently there is a religious ritual element to it. But the the sword thing I have heard. The one I want to see brought back, and I think they got rid of this about 15 years ago, is that you used to have to put on a collapsible top hat if you wanted to raise a point of yes, order. I, I, yes, um, I'm a big fan of that. This was because as people were streaming out, you couldn't be seen. <laughs> so, you know, but perhaps, you know, in, in honour of our Scottish friends, instead of a collapsible top hat, maybe a big ginger wig or something like that. You're drunk, go home. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha, have you come across any traditions which you uh, think are particularly weird? I just think the whole thing is quite weird, let's be quite honest. <laughs> I think the number of men wandering around in hosiery is just like a bit bonkers. Yes. And that is just like, it's amazing how you're just wandering around in a professional, really important workplace. The and there's just place like, in the world. there's just a lot of people in fancy dress. I think all the stuff in the chamber about not seeing you is a bit weird. And I think in the press gallery, it's a bit weird as well because you can't, you've got to have like, 
older men have got to have like ties. Mm. Women can't take your handbag in, which is like a nightmare for most sort of women to be so. Which they can in the chamber if they're MPs, but men can't. You can't, yeah, you man can't, can't man take a man bag. You can't take a man bag, that's just discrimination. Can take their yeah. bag. And I think the weirdest thing is when the speaker is proceeding through yes. that and everyone has to stop what they're doing yeah. and sort of stand by. Hats and not, off strangers. Yeah, and everyone has to sort of like musical statues and be really still. That is completely weird. It is no wonder that some people might suggest that John Burko is a tiny bit pompous. Where's given, the evidence? <laughs> given the palaver that follows him everywhere he goes in Parliament. But I do think the procession and stuff, I think, there are some traditions which I think you should keep, and I think the procession would be one of them because visitors quite like it. Yeah. Um, but where it gets in the way of things, yeah. like the voting system, I have to come back to that because you're just yeah. stuck in these sweltering hot lobbies and it takes forever well, that's to where do, all the to do voting. That's, that's where the schmoozing's happening. We're not hanging around long enough, clearly. And the snuff. If and you the snuff. Take some I'm snuff going back there now. Just basically yeah. hang out with Patrick a lot. Like, he will teach you like all the good stuff going down. Really? Well, sadly, I think that's all we've got time for. I hope you've found it informative, or at the very least, mildly entertaining. For more insight to life in Westminster, visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box, where, uh, by the way, you can find details of a competition for young aspiring journalists. Mm-hmm to have their work published by Redbox. You can find us on Twitter at Times Redbox or on Facebook. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device and you can sign up to my morning email briefing in which I try to explain what's going on in Westminster by 8 o'clock every morning. You can do that at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. But now a huge thanks for everyone who sent in questions. Thanks to Sam and Callum and from Aisha, Stuart, Patrick and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.